really in their right mind is going to stand in the middle of the road in a tent in a fanny pack just for fun. When I started this podcast, I told people about it and they'd always say, oh, you mean like crafty people, like the folks you see on Etsy or at a craft fair. And I'd say, nah, not those people, because those people don't have a real business. It's more of a hobby. They just make some little craft and sell it. Well, Kathleen Plate explained to me that that is very much not always the case. You know, we want to make money. I'm Adam Davidson, and this is The Passion Economy. And look, I don't know if I'm completely wrong. I did some reading, and it is definitely hard to make a living doing the craft fair circuit. It reminds me a little bit of the conversation we had a few episodes back with Jared Reynolds. He's the financial planner who focuses his business on people who love bass fishing. And he explained that the bass fishing professional is often someone who pays more money to go fishing than they make in prize money. And that's the same with craft fairs. You often have to pay to play. You have to buy a table at a fair. It can be competitive. You have to often pay to travel and bring all your inventory with you. If you are really successful and do well, according to the stuff I read, you'd be really happy to make about $45,000 a year. And that would mean you don't have any employees. You don't really have a business. You have a reasonably lucrative hobby. But you know who does have a business, a thriving business? One that started at a craft fair about 30 years ago. Kathleen Plate. She's an artist who takes used glass bottles to make jewelry and chandeliers. Her company is called Smart Glass. And I wanted to learn how she turned a hobby into a thriving business. So let's take a look back. I grew up in Washington State in a small town, like 500 people, fishermen and loggers and... Lots of cows. <laughs> what did your folks do? Uh, my dad, oh gosh, my dad was the principal of my kindergarten through eighth grade school. So that was kind of like being the the preacher's daughter, but everybody went to church <laughs> five times a week. <laughs> and my mom is a chemist and she worked in a hospital laboratory. Oh, really? Okay. And so, but not an entrepreneurial family. No, interestingly, neither of my parents were entrepreneurial in their where they got their income, but very creative outside of that. Like we always did projects and crafts and they, we grew up in a solar home back before that was, they transformed it, they built it. You know, my mom had organic gardens. We had like lots of things going on, but that's not how they got their money. Got you. So then, as I understand it, you then went in the opposite of an entrepreneurial <laughs> direction. You, you're going to be an academic? Yes, exactly. I went off to college and then from college to grad school with the intention of becoming a professor of English literature. So, yeah, it doesn't get any more non-entrepreneurial than that track. <laughs> or of the kinds of professions you can spend, depending on how you count it, 20 years training for, there are a few that make less money and have less <laughs> likelihood of getting a job. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, though, because I never really, honestly, this sounds awful, but I never really thought that much about that I was supposed to be at the end of all of that getting a job or making money or anything. I, even that, I just wanted to do what I like to do. So Yeah. Well, was there a period of English literature or a topic? Oh, of course. Late 19th century minor American women writers. So... 
post-Victorian kind of the... Are there uh, names I would remember or their well, minors? Edith Wharton so? was the biggest one. And so, of course, to study at that point, Edith Wharton, you had to tip your hat to Henry James. So I did a lot with Henry James and then on to Edith Wharton and then a lot of minor writers that you probably wouldn't know about. Gotcha. And did you have your dissertation topic? Yeah, I was looking. Actually, I was melding pop culture. I was really interested in... So after the Victorian age, the they were trying to rewrite the women's role into society, but they didn't really know what to do with these emancipated women. So they just always kind of died these beautiful deaths. They became enlightened or emancipated, and then they kind of died in this white dress and kind of, you know, post-Victorian way. And I was melding that with some of the first images of lesbians in the pop culture. So I was doing fried green tomatoes, northern exposure— and Henry James and Edith Wharton. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So so literally literature didn't know what to do with an emancipated woman other than kill her. Yeah. So she's got a vision. Now, at first, this is very much not a money-making vision, but it's definitely passion. Literature. She's going to get a PhD and then teach other people literature. But then something huge happened, something that changed her life forever. She got invited to a birthday party. I was a broke grad student, and I was like, well, I'll just make my friend a pair of earrings. You know, I had grown up in a really crafty home, and my mom was always doing, you know, different projects and this and that. So when I was in grad school, one of the things I learned from my mom was basic stained glass technique, you know, soldering iron. And I would, when I was in school, I would, like, solder up little things for my friends. And it's kind of fun because you can, you know, it doesn't take up a lot of space, and it's kind of easy, and everything comes out pretty. And I liked to do that when I was in grad school because it was so cerebral, and I have to write these long papers, and I just need a lot of time to, like, think, think, think. And But I do that best when I using my hands or making something. And so so I had a little studio set up in the attic of the house I lived in during grad school. And I was like, well, I'll just look around. And I saw a wine bottle. It was a beautiful emerald green color. And she had long, dark hair. I was like, oh, that color will look great on her. And I broke the bottle open and just used that to make the earrings just kind of out of necessity, really. Did she like them? Yeah, she loved them. So they were the hit of the party, and then all my other friends were like, oh, make us some, make us some. And that's literally how my business started. People tend to overuse the word literally, but in this case, and with someone who almost got a PhD in English literature, she is using the word correctly. That is how her business started. Really natural demand. She was making something special, and everyone around her wanted it. You've already made clear you're not a big dollar signs person, but when did you start thinking, like, oh, I could sell these? Well, um, yeah, so somebody then, somebody said, oh, you should do this arts festival in town. And I, my typical response is, cool, yes, of course. What is it? <laughs> and they, you know, told me it was this local art show, like we've all been to a million times with the tents in the park and artists you know, real artists, not me, <laughs> selling their things. So I signed up. I was accepted. And 
made a whole bunch of stuff for the show. And the great thing was I sold everything the first day. And were so, these earrings still? Or? I did earrings and I did some other kind of bigger things and stuff. But it was really the jewelry and the bottle stuff that was like the biggest hit because it was more unusual. I mean, other people do, you know, stained glass sun catchers and things like that. People have seen those. So they liked them, but it wasn't quite as shocking as what I was doing with the bottles. And so, okay, so this is a craft fair. I mean, I live yeah. here in Brooklyn yeah. where yeah. we have several of these mm-hmm. every summer. And I always wonder about the people with their craft table. You know, I, it's just the way you say yeah. you don't think about money. I kind of only think about money. So yeah. not 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 even because I want money. I just find it, I'm curious. I'm yeah. interested in this yeah. way to think. And as far as I can tell, if you see how much a product costs and how many people seem to be buying them, like, that seems more like a hobby than a business that people it just doesn't seem to me that the people who are making a ceramic figurine or painting paintings or whatever it is are really there's a lot of jobs they could get that could pay them more but it might be fun to make the craft and um yeah i think you would be shocked if you knew i mean and i do think that there are people that are participating at all different levels but just as you're saying that i think I'm part of a online, like a Facebook group for professional, you know, artists that do the show circuits and do wholesale and do it full time as their one and only profession. And I think that group in that one, one group is like 3,200 people that are all doing this full time professionally. Wow. So but I don't... the wholesale piece is the part that will yeah. get. Okay. So at first you're doing it one show yeah. and yeah. you made good money. It was amazing. But I mean, the great thing was I was a grad student. So you really don't have to show a grad student that much cash in hand to catch their attention. So Do you remember what you made that first day? I mean, I probably made like a thousand bucks in a day or something. Or Profit. Well, I mean, I don't think I'd. <laughs> My wife yeah. made these very beautiful cards. Mm-hmm. This was before I knew her a long time ago. And she would sell them. And. It took her a while to realize that she was selling them for less than the, the, yeah. the raw material that she was using. Yeah, no, definitely more profit on the raw material now wouldn't, and the cost of the show and all of that stuff. Maybe not my time. I probably right. didn't factor in my time at that point, but because my time was at a hobby level at that point. But it was enough money that I was, you know, wow, and there was a demand and it, you know, it was great. So that it definitely caught my attention. And there must be a satisfaction in, I made this thing, all these people love it, that's, you can't get it in an office job or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. I mean, I wouldn't know because I never worked in an office, but I <laughs> yeah. wouldn't imagine. I, no, it is. <laughs> all right, so what happens then? So after that, pretty quickly, I started selling in a local gallery that was next to a really, really popular restaurant, and I was selling a ton of these earrings were just like selling all the time. I couldn't believe it. I'd go down there and I'd, you know, peek and see what had sold and what wasn't. And I could hardly make enough to keep it stocked. And there were two other artists in that gallery with me who had started doing the wholesale shows. So they had, um, Atlanta has one of the biggest wholesale marketplaces and they needed somebody. It was very expensive for the booth there. You know, it was like $3,000 or something like that. And they needed somebody to split the costs with them who could handle, you know, was kind of on this trajectory, like could handle the production and was interested in selling to the stores. And also they liked it because my stuff was little. I made jewelry, so I wasn't going to take up a whole bunch of space. So I was a good candidate. And they came to me 
and asked if I wanted to do the show with them. And then, of course, like I said, for everything, sure, great, sounds awesome. What is it? So I had no idea what, you know, I knew that that was where stores came to buy stuff and, you know, that it was good. But I didn't really know hardly anything about it at all. I've been to that show. It's it's intense. Yeah. 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 I remember when I went, this was a while ago, but no cell phones were allowed because there's a real mm-hmm. fear, or not just fear, a knowledge yeah. that people would take pictures of the stuff that seemed exactly. good and then have it manufactured much more cheaply yeah. in another country. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. 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 So how did you do? It was great. I mean, it was so, when I think back, it was so funny. I think I had three items. I had like earrings, bracelet, and a necklace, you know, expand them out from the earrings. So three styles, different colors that I could do them in. And people loved them, but it was really, I felt the whole time like I was like, oh my gosh, I'm fraudulently masking as a business. And people would come up, the buyers, and they'd be like, oh, you know, we really like these. And now in your warehouse, do you have two dozen cobalt in stock? And I would say yes. And then (laughs) (laughs) I would run back to my one-bedroom apartment where I soldered on the kitchen counter and make two dozen pairs and, you know, ship them out to them thinking, oh my gosh, seriously, someone is going to figure out that I am not not a real business. I'm not a real artist. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just making this stuff and selling it, which is exactly what a real business and artist does. Yeah, I was about to say that the big secret in life is everybody's just faking it. Exactly. After the break, how faking it turned into a viable business. That's coming up. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com easy. Ramp.com easy. R-A-M-P dot easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Pretty quickly, Kathleen started to get some momentum selling her crafts, and she keeps her strategy pretty simple. My first 15 years of business was the one and only goal was get the stuff out the door as fast as possible. No sales, no marketing. I mean, I did the shows and stuff, but I just, I had a fax machine. I mean, okay, I started a long time ago. And I'd just be like, if they want stuff, they can just come to me and find it. And that fax machine would just be going off 24-7. So it was a 100% 
how do I make it fast enough? And is this mostly like small boutiques? or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was before the economic crash and it was almost all independent stores, mom and pops and things like that. But that's where that's where business was happening. So before internet sales, really before, you know, Amazon, that type of thing. So, And is it still bottles and reclaimed materials? Mm-hmm. Yeah, different, slightly different format at that point. I hadn't, I hadn't stumbled on the process that I use now that kind of just took it all, this thing that was already starting to happen, then it, the new process just took it to a whole nother level. But yeah, it was Great. still glass and bottles. And so you're growing quite, rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At some point you incorporate? Yeah, I incorporated. I don't know where I get these crazy ideas. I incorporated. I bought my first house, just kind of expanding. Got, you Are know. you having full-time employees? I, yeah, I had one. I mean, on a very informal kind of, I had a friend that ended up working, you know, full-time and and I also, I, I realized I needed to contract out a lot of stuff, so which was kind of nice. Like, oh, I had someone help me with my books and someone answer phone calls sometimes or, you know, do stuff like that. So, And how are you deciding prices? Oh, my gosh. I'm just completely making it up. I'm just making stuff and then seeing what, you know, I think people would pay for it and going with it. So I was lucky because I, and I still honestly, like, I still don't really have a good grasp on there's all these formulas for costing and you take your hard, you know, your fixed costs and then your materials and your time, times, blah, 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 whatever. And um, the one thing that was really lucky for me, since I had no clue what I was doing, is that jewelry has a somewhat elevated value perception. And so I was giving myself a nice markup. I, I had plenty. I had enough markup to support the growth and things. Gotcha. So, yeah. yeah. I remember I had a girlfriend who was a painter and yeah, oh, she... Sold them for fairly cheap, and a friend of hers said, nobody wants a $500 painting. Yeah. They want a $5,000 yeah. painting, and yeah. they don't know the difference. So just yeah. ca- charge $5,000, yeah. they will be happier, you'll make more money. And Yeah. Well, that, I mean, one thing that I, I did learn pretty early on is that I wasn't going to ever win the money game. Like, I would never—I was— my place in the in the market was not to be the cheapest thing because I couldn't compete. That was not me. I would lose that game every single time. And, and in, in the jewelry craft world, there are these factories in China and Bangladesh and mm-hmm. Honduras where lots and lots of very poorly paid people are given some terrible piece rate and just incentivized mm-hmm. to churn the stuff out at bottom, rock bottom prices. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I would never, there was a, I shouldn't even compete in that game because I'll lose every time. So if, and I always would say to people, if you want really inexpensive, super cool stuff, go to Target because it's a whole store filled with it. And, but that's not me. Right. And so I'm just not going to even try to be, I will just be what I am. And it's not that. Are you starting to study trends and get a sense or is it just from the orders you're seeing what people seem to want? One thing that I think was really good for me was that I created my own raw material. So unlike other artists or people that are buying components and putting them together, I created my own raw material. So it always looked really different than other things. And I can remember making the commitment to myself that I would never, I would only ever use like my glass and my metal. So trends would come and go, you know, like sometimes like feathers or, you know, beads or this or that. And I would just have to figure out my version of that, but I would never add anything to it because then I just put myself in the playing field with all the people that were just buying components. Gotcha. And so I needed you're making to stay timeless. Separate. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm never like the coolest thing out there, but I never went out of style either. It was just, right. 
kind of always consistent. Right. Gave me a lot of consistency. Gotcha. So when did you decide to leave graduate school? (laughs) (laughs) So I, after things started happening, I called up the department and I'm like, listen, I'm going to take a little time off and do this, you know, art thing. It's going well. It's kind of fun. And it was really great because they said, great luck to you. We're so happy for you. If you want to teach, if you want to come back, if you want to, whatever you need from us, just let us know. So it made it really nice that I kind of had like the legitimate backup plan while I kind of did this weird entrepreneurial thing. And I think after about two years, I realized I don't think I'm ever going to make it back there. So I called them again and said, hey, I don't think I'm going to make it back. And they gave me my default master's degree because I I was somewhere between the master's and the PhD. And so how long was it from like the making earrings for a friend to like, oh, this is real money. There's something here that's working. I would say within a year. I mean, it was, I had a stack of orders that I could never get to the bottom of, you know, I never get all the work done. So it felt fairly financially secure in a very odd way. Wow. Within a year. Yeah. 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 And then I started, and I was doing a lot of outdoor shows and the wholesale and everything like that. And I think, um, you know, my parents were terrified, like, oh my gosh, you're leaving a PhD program. And they couldn't understand how this was working until I announced that I had the down payment and I was going to buy a house. Wow. And that was maybe two years. Two years. I mean, that's a big, (laughs) to go from broke grad student who's really, really hoping to be in, you know, to buying a house. That's, that's, yeah. yeah. And it was a little funny because I did so many, I was saving up for this house and I kept doing all these shows and I was just putting cash into a safety deposit box. And (laughs) about a week before the closing, they called and they said, um, hey, we can't verify your funds. And I was like, oh, don't worry, I have cash. And that's when I learned that you can't buy a house with cash. Right. Legally. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, some, some funny (laughs) twists and turns along the way. So by going to the craft fairs and by selling wholesale to boutiques, just working her tail off to fill orders, learning to pay people to do the things she couldn't, like her books, answering the phone, because after all, she wanted to spend all of her time, or as much as she could, making the art. She was able to build a healthy business. And then, something that seemed part luck and part reflection of the fact that she really had learned how to make a product that was truly unique, truly special. She started getting corporate accounts. That's after the break. So it's going along and I'm doing, you know, working with all these stores and putting my jewelry out there in the world. And that's so interesting. I, I got a phone call one day and it was literally, it was on an answering machine because I can remember like pressing the button, listening to it and like, you know, rewinding, listening again, like, oh my gosh. And it was from someone from Aveda corporate and I had been using their bottles because I thought it was kind of cool with the words and, you know, maybe because of my English <laughs> degree or whatever, I like the the glass with the words, the ingredients printed on them. I was like, oh, this will be kind of neat. And somehow those had gotten into the hands of someone at corporate. What I heard was that someone was wearing them and ended up at dinner with somebody that worked in the corporate offices. And next thing I know, I get this message that they would like to talk to me about doing an order with them and Could I do, you know, some larger quantities? And then they just started rattling off these numbers. Like, we want 500 earrings and 500 bracelets and this and that. So the thing that was so interesting is that they just found me. They just 
cold called me out of the blue. Wow. Were you nervous at first that it was a trademark violation call? No, because I had researched a little bit. Like garbage is kind of fair game unless I was branding it that way and stuff. But I mean, no, they they were just very open. And then the next call I got a few years down the road was this time from Coca-Cola. Wow. And uh, speaking of the, you know, trademarks and things like that, I didn't even use the the Coca-Cola bottles. I mean, they're kind of a pain in the butt, honestly, because they're fluted and they're small and, you know, hard to work with. But they had seen the work that I was doing and I got a call. um, I'll never forget a woman. She still works at Coke. And she said, this is the director of new product development and hard goods purchasing at Coca-Cola. We've seen your work. We love it. We want you to do it out of our bottles. And we'd like to set up an appointment for you to bring samples down to headquarters. And I can remember just being like, oh, my gosh. And were those huge orders compared to what you had been getting? Massive. Massive. I had no idea. Yeah, it was the biggest thing I'd ever. Wow. It was like Rumpelstiltskin. Like, oh, my gosh, how will I ever spin this many bottles? (laughs) (laughs) Now, something that some people get concerned about when you get a huge new client, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're going from small Mm -hmm. mom and pop boutiques to Coca-Cola, one Mm of the, you can become over-dependent on that one client. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one morning Coca-Cola wakes up and says, eh, Mm -hmm. we don't want these anymore and you're done. Were you able to remain diversified? I did, yeah. I still worked with all of my regular stores and things. And then those big purchases were just kind of icing on the cake. But yeah, you're exactly right. You have to make sure that you're at your slowest, you're still solvent, you know, yeah. you're not, these things, those are special. And I don't even count them when I would like run numbers or look at how we were doing or whatever. Sometimes I just I, like put those to the side and I don't even count them. They're like the bonus, you know, they're like the bonus money. Right. Got you. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. And and how are you, so let's say now, uh-huh. uh, like where do you do this stuff? Is so, it still your kitchen table? No. <laughs> I now work out of a 5,000-square-foot commercial space in Atlanta, and I have a lot of big machines and kilns and all kinds of things that, you know, it's like a, I mean, it's like a factory, but not a factory. It's like an art studio, but not an art studio. It's kind of somewhere in between. Cool. And how many people do you have employees? I do, and we are a mean team of three. So I, my trick or where I try to place myself in the market is I want to be as small as possible on the inside and as big as possible on the outside. So, and how do you measure bigness? Like number of units, number of stores, number of outlets? My money. Money. I I guess I finally came around to the money (laughs) thing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, before the, it was interesting because before the shift, I was growing before like whatever, 2007, 2008, when everything like crashed and whatever. I was kind of in this perfect storm of like, we were doubling our revenue every year. Green products were just hitting the marketplace as a big category. And I was at a natural high in my business. Plus I had this boost from being sustainable and I had 11 employees and to fly off a cliff at that trajectory was terrifying. To have to let people go. and Yeah. I mean, luckily all my people... Kind of, I was always like the consistent side gig for a lot of people. So they had things that were their true passions and, you know, they were able to shift and move. And yeah, I mean, letting people go, getting everything shrunk down to, and and then not knowing, it never came back how it was, it never, it wasn't like it shrunk down and then it grew back up. It morphed into a whole different thing that nobody knew what it was. And everything that worked before didn't work anymore. And you'd try something, it would work once and it wouldn't work. So 
So I come from public radio and, mm-hmm. and like a lot of podcasters. And that means coming from a world not unlike academia where mm-hmm. there's sort of a – certainly in the humanities, mm-hmm. leaving aside other more lucrative fields, and you know, where it's – you know, you can make a decent living, but mm-hmm. you're not going to make a fortune. And you're really driven by a passion for the work. Mm-hmm. And that was the career I had and was very happy with. And then podcasting has kind of come in mm-hmm. and suddenly there are people from that world who are making a lot more money. Mm-hmm. It's also disrupting and people are losing jobs. Anyway, so I'm always interested in that, in people who go through that change. Because I think there's a lot of people who their whole lives are in a kind of my dad's an actor. I grew up mm-hmm. in all artist housing in Greenwich Village. So I know very well people who've spent their whole lives not caring about money, caring about their craft. I also know people who structured their life around, I mean, they might have a passion for business. They're, it's not that they're doing something they hate, but mm-hmm. they really do want to measure their success in money. But you, like me, kind of left one world and went to another. Mm-hmm. How has that been? I feel like I created a job for myself that suits me so perfectly. When I started, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be one of those people that like works my butt off my whole life, work, 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 and then when I old, I'm old, I retire and go have fun. I'm going to be half retired my entire career. So I traveled. I had so much freedom. Luckily, I had the financial freedom coming with it. You know, we're not talking like tons of money, but enough. And where did you travel? Where in the world did you go? I've been. I've. I, all over the place. I was infatuated with Latin America for many, many years. So I've been to every country down there. I go, you know, the longest I went was like a month at a time. Now I spend one month a year in Mexico. This time last year, I was in Europe. I went to, you know, Berlin, Copenhagen, Stockholm. January, I went to India, went, got to go sit with some of the Dalai Lama's highest colleagues and things. Wow. And I guess next year I'm going to bike ride through Vietnam. So I kind of do whatever I want. (laughs) That's awesome. Do you ever go to a faculty committee meeting just to see what what you escaped? You know what, though? I'm strangely fascinated with people that have real jobs. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's so interesting. You go to a certain place. They pay you for the hour. You know, you you get paid to exist in a certain time-space reality. I get paid only if I think something up, figure out how to make it, figure out how to sell it. And keep that going. So it's such a different orientation to money, really. Yeah. And what has changed? Like, is it, are you still making the same kinds of products, just more demand? (sighs) Yeah. Well, I work with some really big clients. So that's been amazing that I've been able to position myself. So I have like this philosophy. I always try also kind of back to what we're saying about I will never win the game of being like the cheapest thing or the the largest produced thing or whatever. So I just always try to like not be the sheeple. Whatever I see the other people doing, try to go the opposite direction because that's where I can succeed because I can't, I'll never win against everybody. And that's a core passion economy. I mean, the whole idea of the passion economy is there's scale and there's intimacy. And intimacy means creating some product or service that you can uniquely create. No one else can create. And scale is... Let's, you know, target. It's let's make five million of them. And I think, you know, there's a a good chunk of the 20th century where being kind of in the middle was okay, like Mm -hmm. making stuff that other people could do, but 
you're yeah. you're closer or you're you've kind of got a few accounts but now i think you really do have to pick am i either at the very intimate end mm-hmm. or am i going to be the one making 500 million in some yeah. low cost factory somewhere yeah. and or have some robotic automation that makes it and and adjusting because things mm-hmm. adjust so there might be things you made 5 years ago that today there's a glut in the market and you'll never compete. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like I had to adjust on both sides because I had to adjust down from the larger corporations and the mass production. But what happened after the economic crash that really came up, which is so interesting, was um, Etsy and all these people who suddenly nobody had golden handcuffs anymore and everything was so topsy-turvy that people did start following their passions. So I was getting it from the backside, too, with all of the Etsy and the the Internet. Right. And the thing super Which interesting— Which might—some of those might— like my wife did, sell at an uneconomic price. Well, that's the thing is Etsy, it was really interesting. It's like I was watching it and I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's really great stuff, super talented people and it's dirt cheap. And what I realized is they were doing it as a, like a side hustle or a side passion and they were not priced for scaling. So they could beat me on price and newness and coolness all day long. Can't compete with the big guys because I can't pump it out like China. But what those Etsy people couldn't do is they couldn't scale. They couldn't. So I realized that my target was really like mid-tier. Gotcha. And I just, I'm Someone making who's going to order like a hundred rather yeah, than. Yeah. So I could do this weird thing where I could be like super, you know, I'm still a handcrafted artist running an art studio, but I can work with some of the biggest companies in the world. You know, I work with like Estee Lauder, Vizaveda, um, you know, Coca-Cola. Now I'm I'm running, I'm doing lighting for every Chick-fil-A nationwide that we're handcrafting in our studio. So my sweet spot, again, kind of back to that, like small on the inside, but big on the outside. So I had to be two different groups, one at the top and one at the bottom and figure out where my, the things that I could do where they were needed and of value. So there's volume, but it's not hyper price sensitive volume. So it's not like... Walmart that's like, if we can get three quarters of a penny off the price per unit, we can make a lot of money. But it's also not selling to each individual and all the fulfillment. So it sounds like your orders are in the hundreds or thousands, not the hundreds of thousands. That's what I prefer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where, that's what our strength is, that I'm a handcrafted artist that can make you something with my, you know, in my studio with my hands, but I can do it a hundred times over and beat a crate from China or I can fulfill, you know, I can, I'm not going to fold. I'm not going to run out of cash. I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, just doing this and I'm going to be here and then gone. This is my full-time profession. So, yeah. Right. Now on Etsy today, there are a lot of crates from China that are yeah, well, sold. Yeah. So that's a whole other <laughs> issue. Again, yeah. the only constant is change. Yeah. Just keep. <laughs> so, it mean, it seems to me like you didn't realize it, but you were a natural business person. Like you have steadily paid attention to what your strategy is, to where you're positioned in the market. I mean, those seem like like the savvy thoughts of a natural business person. Yeah, I would agree. I, and I, I had no idea. I just, you know, I'd think a lot. Like I just, I'm curious. I'm super curious. Like how does this work? What's happening? And it's funny because I've discovered a lot of known business principles and things. I'll have these conversations. I've been talking to someone who is, you know, isn't a money person or economist or a factory owner, runner, and I'll be telling them something and I don't have, I don't know what the vocabulary word for it is. And they're like, oh, in the industry, we call that the blah, blah, blah. And I was like, 
oh, I didn't know it was a thing. Okay, good to know. Yeah, no, you the know? blah, blah, blah. It's very crucial <laughs> in business. So if someone's listening to this who is a crafter mm-hmm. and is like, boy, I would like to be where you are. I'd like to make mm-hmm. this a real business. I'd like to own my mm-hmm. own house. I'd like to travel the world and spend a month, a year in Mexico. <laughs> How, <laughs> can you give them your address in Mexico so they can yeah. go? <laughs> What would be your advice? You know, what the world. I mean, my all my colleagues. I have so many friends that are doing this. So one, it's totally doable. There's a lot of people that are doing variations and versions of this. I think that there's two things that you have to do simultaneously. Is one support the growth of the business, but I think you also have to. I don't think people amass wealth off of business proceeds. They take those proceeds and invest them in other things that build wealth. So. Like one thing that I did when I started was I'd take about, I made up some number, like 2% of my profit and I'd always save it to the side so that when an opportunity came, I would have the capital to do that and stuff. So kind of... Like what kinds of things have you invested in? Well, I own property. Property is a really great one. I realized really early, like, oh, if you buy a house and you live in it in two years, take the appreciation, sell it tax-free and then just keep doing that. So I have, now I have like right now just three properties that I own and investing, you know, in cash reserves and long game things, like buy things of value with it. Don't, if you're going to, you can do this and you can start to make money, but don't go buy clothes and shoes. I mean, buy those things because they're super fun, but you got to also buy smart investments that take you farther. So I feel like an example of that where I am right now is that I have a really amazing project going. I said, I'm doing the lighting for every single Chick-fil-A? (laughs) Chick-fil-A nationwide. So I've done like, for three years, I've done about 175 lights a year for them, which is amazing for an artist to get that type of, that's like the big contract or whatever. But what I've done is I have a small window where right now I look really good on paper and I've got the funds. I need to parlay that into something that's going to pay me beyond the duration of this contract. So I actually just am at the end of developing a mobile app for my industry that then should take, you know, I self-funded it. From those that profit, and I built another thing of value. So you have to; it's completely doable, but you have to be smart about your strategy around it. Yeah. The other thing is, you do have to have a truly unique product. Like if you're a craftsperson yeah. who's doing something that mm-hmm. really isn't differentiable from some other thing that Target or whoever yeah. is is buying at mass producing production levels, you're out of luck. And so yeah. having that that core thing that's also not there's enough vision and artistry and craftsmanship and that even if I just took a picture of what you're doing now and tried to simulate it, I couldn't really copy it. And, yeah. and But there probably are other things where maybe a factory could mass produce them if there's not enough vision in it. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really fine line between being true to yourself and also believing in something. You know, I mean, you'll know right away if you're onto something because the demand will be there. You know, people are going to, your friends, your family, they're going to want it. And it will it should start, like, momentum that way. I've also seen people that have had to wait longer and just really believed in this one thing and kept pushing it and pushing it. So I don't, yeah, it's a, it's a strange balance. It's kind of like, I always think my energy is best spent doing exactly what I do. So even if you take business out of it, take product out of it, there's all this stuff like just be you and the the world will adjust or, you know, you're the best thing about you is that you're you and you're not somebody else. So if you keep your focus on that, I always think you're going to have a better result than if you're looking around trying to see what other people are doing and copy it. That's not sustainable because it's not you can only 
you can only produce what's already been done and it's not really coming from you. So it's going to. Yeah. I mean, my argument is you can do that at the kind of scale level if you're a huge company with a lot of money and you can, you know, like they're. But even that is a tough like you look at major product companies like Procter & Gamble or whatever. They're really struggling for growth because it's really hard to have something truly fresh. And then you're really competing on price and manufacturing is so efficient now, it's really hard to dramatically cut your costs. So I certainly for people who listen to this podcast, I think focusing on what's uniquely you, although not stubbornly, if yeah, there's no market a, it, yeah, for it. It's such a fine line. And yeah. yeah, and you have to be, you have to keep your eyes open and take the feedback of what people say. And if everyone's like, you know, if you're not selling it, then shift, you know. And the other thing I think, too, that's really important is to get clear about what, your what you consider success. So for me, I always had this little mantra that for me, success was to do what I want, when I want, with who I want. And I wasn't trying to build like a massive empire. That really wasn't that interesting to me because I wanted my I wanted my freedom. I wanted my time. I wanted to live a very full life. So what I was really after was a a sustainable game plan that kept me in a really nice mid area for a really long time. So, and I think that those people get forgotten about a lot. Like I I don't think you have to build a million dollar empire. I think you have to just do something that you love and be able to pay your bills and do the things that you like. And that's good enough. And I really feel like I'm an advocate for the I always call myself like a micro business or I I said before like a cottage corporation, but then a cottage sounded kind of you're not a micro I mean you're like I'm micro. I mean, the definition of a small business, I think it goes up to 25 employees. I have yeah. two. Like, I'm not even on the map. Although you're doing very well, it sounds no, like. No, I, I am, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm cottage on the inside and corporate on the outside. Right, right, and that's right. the sweet spot that I like so much. This is what I like about Kathleen so much. She has a clear vision of what she wants her growth to be, where her sweet spot is. I say this a lot, but there aren't that many huge Fortune 500 companies out there. They don't actually account for all that many businesses in the U.S. It's businesses like Smart Glass, businesses of that size where you can carve out a space for yourself, hire a few people, steadily grow, and create the exact job you want and make money. I get so frustrated sometimes like Oprah and things like that back when she had like follow your bliss and then she would do these supposedly inspirational things about the people that create this thing and then it sells for like a million bazillion dollars and then they're the CEOs of these giant companies and I'm like um that's awesome but I find that actually that's intimidating for a lot of people more than it is inspiring and a lot of people just want to make the money they need to live a really good life and that is totally doable yeah no, of course. Yeah. Although I would even say going up a level, like making, you know, not, you know, a few hundred grand a year and oh, building, yeah, no, building not, a say, Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. talking anything under a million yeah. a year. Yeah, yeah. Because I find in business often they don't really count you. Like you're not on the clock until you hit a million a year in retail sales. Right. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot that happens between zero and 999,000. And that's where I yeah. focus. So I'm not saying I am not an advocate for not having enough money or not being sustainable. If you love something, you got to make enough money out of it to keep doing it. Otherwise, what's the point? The 
Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 